Hey, hello, listeners. Orhan Erdem here. I recently embarked on a new journey, transitioning to University of North Texas. So now, instead of the usual backdrop, I am coming to you straight from heart of Texas. So welcome to my podcast, Financially Yours, for insightful and inspiring discussions on everyday economic and financial issues. So let's dive in. Today, I will talk about inflation. So what is inflation? Why did it increase in the recent years? And why is it decreasing these days? What is the optimal level of inflation? Is it purely numeric or is there a psychological component to it? Let me start the podcast with a story. Every nation has its own inflation success or failure stories. But the story of Brazil is really stunning. In Brazil, during the late 80s and early 90s, inflation soared to almost 3,000%. Monthly inflation was almost 100%. The price of an item would double every month. The stores were supposed to change the price tags every single day. The inflationary period lasted almost 50 years until 1994. Brazil's government were really helpless. One day in 1994, the finance minister Cardozo, who confessed that he knew nothing about economics, decided to call economists Edward Bacha and his three friends, Joao Asayat, Percio Arida, Andre Resende, in a bid to combat this economic mayhem. These economists introduced a unique idea that has never been tried before. They came up with the idea of introducing a new virtual currency with stable value. It was called URV, which stands for Unidade Real de Valor, or Unit of Real Value. The money would totally be virtual. No coins or bills would be issued. It was not something that somebody could hold in her hand. It was basically a non-monetary reference currency. Everything starting from prices of everyday items to taxes and wages would be listed in two different currencies. Whatever one bought, they would see two prices, one in Cruzeiro's Real and one in URV. Say, for example, that one pair of shoes cost 10 Cruzeiros on one day, which was equal to one URV. One month later, say the cost of shoes increased to 20 Cruzeiros, but it would still be announced that it was one URV people would still pay 20 cruzeros for the shoes, but would observe that the other reference currency's value was stable. It is still one URV. In this way, people would start believing that the new currency was not subject to inflation, then therefore would change their inflationary behaviors. And then in time, Brazil would switch to the new currency. Even the IMF did not believe these guys, mainly because no single country in the world have ever tried this before. But Brazil went ahead with the proposal. Prices started being displayed in both the old Cruzeiro and in URV. Over time, people noticed something incredible. While the Cruzeiro prices kept hopping around, URV prices stayed relatively stable. It was easier for people to plan, budget, and even save in URVs. The nation's trust slowly shifted from the tangible but volatile Cruzeiro to the stable, albeit virtual URV. Homeowners stopped charging higher rent every year or depositors stopped demanding higher interest rates. People adjusted their spendings accordingly. Thus, inflationary expectations changed. This was basically a psychological trick that could potentially stabilize the shopping list. Within just six months, people embraced the new currency in July 1994, the government introduced the new currency in physical form, replacing the old Cruzeiro. 
people already accustomed to URV swiftly transitioned from the Cruzeiro Real to the URV. Inflation, which stood at 2,075% in 1994, plummeted to 66% in 1995 and 15% in 1996, and further down to 7% in 1997. This psychological trick of first gaining trust in a stable value in a stable virtual currency before launching it physically proved to be masterstroke that curbed Brazil's inflation dragon. Stabilization of prices were followed by structural reforms such as the end of state monopoly over gas and transparency in financial markets, and the country entered a sustainable growth path. Today, I will host an expert, Dr. Lawrence Marsh, who is a professor emeritus in the Department of Economics at University of Notre Dame. Let me spell his name for you, M-A-R-S-H. Dr. Marsh taught graduate and undergraduate economics in the department for 30 years, beginning in 1975. In 1990, he co-founded the Midwest Econometrics Group and later directed it for 15 years, alongside leading the PhD program in economics for 13 years. He has taught extensively, earning many accolades, and has served on 80 PhD dissertation committees. Now, in quasi-retirement, Professor Marsh writes extensively with two notable books published by Avala University Press, the proceeds of which go entirely to student scholarships. Welcome and good morning, Larry. How are you? Great. Thank you, Orhan. Okay, uh, Larry, inflation has been a very hot topic in the recent years. However, over the past two or three months, Federal Reserve officials have also breathed a sign of relief as it has slowed down to 3.2 from a peak of 9.1 in June 2022. So let's start with the basics. Can you please define inflation and how it is measured? Inflation is a broad-based rise in prices. So ordinarily, some prices go up and other prices go down. That's natural and normal. But when all prices tend to go up together, at least the, the most of the prices go up together, that creates a problem because the money starts losing its value. So the way that the inflation is normally measured, uh, traditionally, it uses a consumer price index, which takes a market basket of goods and services, and just evaluates that set of products and those quantities for those products month after month so it knows uh, what the changes are in the overall basket. And so that's supposed to be the typical representation of what a consumer would be spending on that market basket of goods and services. Unfortunately, it doesn't take into account substitution. So if apples go up, the price of apples go up, you might switch to oranges, or if oranges go up, you might switch to apples. So that they've tried to adjust for that in recent years, but they're not doing it as effectively. And food prices and gasoline prices tend to be very volatile. So some economists prefer to use core CPI, core consumer price index, which excludes the food and, and energy components. Some economists see core inflation as a better predictor of future inflation than overall inflation. Do you agree with that? Yes, they do. And also, the Federal Reserve uses a different measure that takes into account substitution, which is the personal consumption expenditure price index. And that is the one they're actually using to measure whether they're successful or not uh, in, in stopping inflation. And that one looks at the changes in goods and services consumed by the household. So they look at how much you're actually spending, uh, as opposed to picking particular items and evaluating the price of those particular items. 
so personal consumption expenditure index is different than consumer price index in a way that it's measuring what we use in our daily lives. Is that right? Yeah. So it takes into account substitution and, and how we change our consumption of goods and services as, as prices change relative to one another. Thank you. Uh, could you explain the significant increase in inflation between 2020 and 2022? Just for the context, the inflation rate hit a peak of 9% in June 2022, which was the highest in 40 years. So what was the reason behind it? Kind of two reasons. Um, one was on the supply side. So when you think about inflation, you've got too much money chasing too few goods. So you've got too much demand and not enough supply. So what's going on, uh, what actually went on was we had the COVID-19 pandemic, which interfered with their supply, especially our overseas supply networks. And so that reduced the supply, which, and then the demand was actually increased by the stimulus ex expenditures, the, both under the Trump administration and the Biden administration, there was Congress passed stimulus expenditures, and those increased the demand for products. So the supply of products were being suppressed because of the COVID-19 pandemic supply issues. And at the same time, the, the stimulant expenditures were also uh, causing an increase in demand. And the combination of an increased demand and reduced supply uh, created the inflation that got up to the 9.1% in June of 2022. How about the war? Do you think that the war had an effect on it? Yeah, it did. And the, the war in Ukraine is definitely influencing things to some degree, but it's a little more complicated. Uh, of course, they negotiated or they required that lower price for natural gas. But so there's, there's two prices. There's crude oil uh, international, which is called Brent. And there's the, the domestic uh, crude oil, which is called WTI for West Texas Intermediate. But they tend to be related because uh, how much oil is out there in the in the world affects the price at the pump in the United States. And one of the problems is that Saudi Arabia has been holding back on the production of, of crude oil, and that's kept prices up in the United States more than uh, politicians running for re-election would like. And just a follow-up question to your previous point. Why do we exclude gas and food to measure the core inflation? What is the logic behind it? It's just that they are very volatile. And okay. so you'd see it jumping all over the place and people wouldn't get a sense of what was really going on because one month would be way up and the next month would be way down. And, you know, okay, cool. they, it's too much of a roller coaster. Okay, cool. Can you please shed light on what is considered an optimal or normal level of inflation? Well, they've designated 2% inflation as, as the normal level. And the reason for that is that when you come up with new innovative products, and you wanna attract more workers uh, from other old industries, in order to get the, new, the workers to come over to your new industry, you need to offer them higher wages. If you wanted to keep wages constant, then the, the old industries have to lower wages. Wages are sticky. They're not gonna, workers are not gonna, they're gonna be upset if their wages are lowered. So it works better to have a 2% inflation where the new industry can offer 2% higher wages than the old industry to attract the workers away from the old industry, the new industry. So you want them to go from the horse and buggy industry to the automobile industry. You need to make that transition as smooth as possible. And having a little bit of inflation helps make that transition. 
why do we have this magical number of 2%? What would happen, for example, if Federal Reserve aimed for 1% inflation? So why is it 2%? Well, 0% would be a problem for sure, because the old industry would have to lower wages in order for the new industry to get workers uh, to keep uh, wages constant throughout the economy. So you really can't keep wages constant throughout the economy uh, unless you think you can get away with lowering wages in the old industry, but that's not likely to happen. There's too much resistance. The wages are too sticky. So uh, that, that's now, some people argue that it should actually be 4%, that we would transition more rapidly to new technological industries, new technology, if we had a little bit higher rate. But the 2% has become so uh, so fixed that, and that if you changed it to 4%, it would upset people's ex inflation expectations. And inflation expectations played a big role in the rate at which inflation rises. So if you start messing with the 2%, rate and make it a three or 4%, you're going to upset the apple cart and get people to start expecting much higher inflation. And they're going to start uh, spending their money faster. And the faster you spend the money, the faster the inflation is going to go up. So you get a cycle like in Zimbabwe or Venezuela where inflation can get totally out of control. So 2% is low, but positive inflation to keep the wages increasing. Yeah, to keep the wages increasing. So you make the transition to new, new industries. Okay, cool. Let's come to Federal Reserve. So how does increasing interest rates help decrease inflation? Basically, there's a direct effect and an indirect effect. Now, the direct effect uh, raises the cost of borrowing for, for people that are looking to buy expensive items like an automobile or a house, or they're thinking about going to college, so they want to get student loan. And so what happens in the, the direct effect uh, is, is it actually causes the inflation to shift from things that require a loan to things that don't require a loan. And because of this excessive inflation, your money is losing value. You, you feel you have to spend it or next year it won't be worth as much. So you, you, it shifts the inflation from things that require a loan to things that don't require a loan. But the indirect effect is actually more effective in stopping inflation. And that indirect effect goes through the supply side because on the supply side, there's a lot of businesses that borrow money to operate. So there's retail businesses that borrow money throughout the year, and then they don't make a profit till the holiday season at the end of the year, where they cover their costs with the revenues and make a profit. And so uh, farmers uh, put a lot of money in in the spring and don't get any money till harvest time in the fall. So there's a lot of businesses that operate on borrowing money. And if you raise the cost of borrowing, they have to cut hours, lay off workers, and close outlets. And this means workers don't get as much money, and you can't spend money you don't have. If the workers don't get the money, then they, the demand falls for the goods and services. Unfortunately, it also curtails supply to some extent. So it's not very efficient. It does work, but not in a very efficient way. So basically, increasing interest rates discourage people from, from spending both individuals and the companies. Yes, that's right. Okay. From your perspective, what do you see as the most significant challenge inflation presents to average households and how can policymakers best uh, address these challenges? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, of course, substituting cheaper products is, is, is a good way to deal with it. But it is very hard for individuals to deal with inflation 
they don't have any real control over it other than making substitutions and cutting back on their expenditures. You know, in general, it's good, especially for young people to be very frugal uh, in, in any case because of compound interest. You, you can earn a lot more money in the long run if you invest a lot early on and not wait till you're 50 or 60 years old to start uh, saving for retirement. <laughs> so yeah, basically they should cut back on their expenditures and, and, and substitute cheaper products whenever possible. With the current inflation rate standing at 3.2% as the end of July, would you say that's a victory for economic policy? In my opinion, it's not a victory for the Federal Reserve. It's not a victory for monetary policy. It turns out that fiscal policy is actually more effective in dealing with prices than with than monetary policy. But the the reason that the Federal Reserve was created in 1913 was because there's too much political shenanigans going on. It's too hard to uh, have the politicians control things when the politicians um, they they just uh, want to get their votes. So they may not be optimizing optimal economic policy in terms of reducing inflation or uh, getting out of recession properly. Uh, so the, in, in 1913, the Federal Reserve was given the authority to run monetary policy. The problem has come about uh, that, that the Federal Reserve doesn't have the right tools anymore to control it very well. And, and what's happened is the financial markets have become more and more separated from the real economy. So Wall Street has getting into these collateral debt obligations and credit default swaps and all these derivatives and money is going around and around in the financial markets. Money is going around and around in the financial markets, but it's not getting to the people in the real economy. So that's a fundamental problem that we have to deal with is getting the money to the people in the real. So in the real economy, we need uh, measures that will actually reduce the demand for goods and services. So Federal Reserve's interest rate target is 2%. Right now, the inflation rate is 3.2%. Do you think that it is enough or do you think that it should push more to get until 2%? Okay. I don't think it's really necessary for it to push more because there are two factors that are going on that make it much easier to stop inflation. One is that we've reestablished our supply lines overseas. But secondly, the businesses have learned that you can't just operate with just-in-time delivery, that they got burned big time because all of a sudden the overseas was not delivering. There, there wasn't providing the supply of the goods and services. So what they've done in the last year or so is they've increased their manufacturing base in the United States. And they've in, developed manufacturing capability in the United States, and they're producing some items in the United States, even though they're still relying mainly on overseas. But they want that flexibility. So if the overseas supply gets cut off, they can suddenly increase their production in the United States, which is a little bit more expensive, but at least they, they'll have their supply. So that's one factor that's going on. So on the supply side, supply is increasing. But on the demand side, demand is starting to decrease because a lot of the stimulus spending has now run out. And they can no, they're no longer getting all the stimulus money to everybody. And um, the student loans, may, you may have to start paying back your, your student loans. That's, that's going to cut into your expenditures for other goods and services. And then the Congress just made it more difficult for people on welfare by increasing the age uh, where you have, to, you have to show that you've made an effort to find work or that you're working. 
And these factors have decreased demand. And they're the decrease in demand and the increase in supply, and that has suppressed inflation. So that's been more effective than the, than the Federal Reserve's policies. Do you think that they hit the brakes too hard in raising the interest rate? So may the Federal Reserve's policy result in unnecessary recession? I think it could very well. It's it's hard to know. You know, prediction is, is quite difficult. You know, what do they... they, they, they uh, say that economists have predicted nine out of the last uh, three recessions or something at this point. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't make uh, a big guess. I would I would say it's possible that we may run into a recession, but I'm not um, I cannot be sure at this point. If the current inflationary trends persist, what are the potential long-term impacts for for people for economic growth for wealth inequality, which you mentioned a lot in your book? By the way, let me show your book to our listeners. So this is Larry's book, which he discusses tons of things about inflation, one of which is Fed accounts, which I will come in a moment. Well, if excessive inflation continues, there's a tendency for the inflation to pick up speed. And it's because people realize, start realizing that the, their money is losing value. And so they want to spend it more quickly. And, and get it so and money starts it's like they they begin like in venezuela and and in zimbabwe they they hate money they it's burning their hands they've got to get rid of it as quickly as possible so uh, now you know we're not in that situation yet but but once you get it into an inflationary spiral things can get out of hand and so there is a real danger that that if this inflation were to continue at a high rate that nine percent is just not really acceptable rate and inflationary expectations plays a big role because if you're expecting things to keep going up and up, you want to get rid of the money faster and faster. How about Europe? Which one is more successful in fighting the inflation, Europe or United States? Well, the United States has done better, but I, I, I wouldn't give monetary policy, the, as I had mentioned, I wouldn't give monetary policy the, the, all of the credit. I think the fiscal situation you know, and the supply situation, everything has, has played a big role in the United States. So the United States is doing better, but... Okay, so let's come to uh, the point that you were making, Fed accounts proposal. So you are emphasizing the proposal for Federal Reserve to offer Fed accounts directly to public. So what is it? Can you explain this? Yeah, so there's there's two different proposals in a way. One is, is just simply reissuing the Postal Savings Act of 1910 and offering people a 10% interest rate on their savings. Uh, in the, so in, when you enter the post office, there'll be a big sign saying 10% on your savings here at the post office. And the Federal Reserve would run it. And, and so it wouldn't cost the taxpayer a penny because the Federal Reserve makes a big profits every year through their financial operations. They make between $50 billion and $100 billion uh, every year. So they could easily pay for running these postal savings accounts. Now, that doesn't help uh, so much as, as if you could have a Fed, Fed accounts, Federal Reserve accounts for everybody with a Social Security number. Because when you get in the situation where you need to stimulate the economy, you want to do it in a fair manner. And if, if only some people had postal savings accounts, you couldn't just put money into the accounts that, for people that had a postal savings account. You would need someone to have a federal account with a Federal Reserve uh, so that everyone with a Social Security number had an account with a Federal Reserve. And then you would arrange to have tax refunds put into those accounts. Um, you might even put in $1,000 initially uh, which couldn't be withdrawn until age 70, although the interest could be withdrawn. And then you can put in additional money, and that money could be withdrawn at any time. And that would be Let's, exp- so then, 
But uh, yes, you can inject money directly into these accounts. So let's explain this to our listeners. So basically, people are going to have an account at postal services or at Federal Reserve that they can deposit and withdraw money. So this is this is Fed accounts. Yeah. So what would be its advantage over borrowing from or depositing to to uh, commercial banks? What's the difference? Okay. Well, what the big problem is when you have a time of inflation is that the banks, when they see that the Fed's trying to slow the economy and they think we might go into a recession, they don't want your money because the thing is, is that they have uh, under our fractional reserve banking system, they have excess reserves. And when you put money in the bank, then they have to pay you some savings of, uh, interest rate. And, and they would like to set the savings interest rate to zero, but that would freak everyone out. They don't want to lose all their money. But they, they don't want additional money at that time because they're cutting back on loans as they see a recession looming uh, coming up. So you get a situation where banks are not going to offer you more than the rate of inflation. You're going to, you, some banks offer really poor rates and others may offer 4 or 5% uh, when you have 7% or 9% inflation. But if you can offer, say, 10% inflation, uh, 10% uh, interest on savings in the, in the postal savings accounts, then you're covering the inflation plus a premium, which motivates the marginal saver. And it's the marginal saver that's going to influence the price level because prices are set on the margin, not on the average. The wealthiest people are just moving their money around. So you've got to limit it to like $10,000. They could buy that new pair of shoes. But if you offer them 10% on savings, they may put off buying that new pair of shoes and instead put the money into savings. You are saying in your book that stimulus money or tax cuts mostly favor for the wealthy. How? Well, certainly the tax cuts favor the wealthy. And it depends on how you do the stimulus money, of course, as to how it favors the wealthy versus the people that are not so wealthy. So... Yeah, there is a big problem that the Federal Reserve operates through the financial markets. But 84% of the stocks are owned by the 10% wealthiest people. And so when you pour money into the financial markets, you're basically making the wealthiest people wealthier, but they have very low marginal pensions consumed. But you everybody everybody receives stimulus checks, right? So everybody can spend it in some way or another, but the wealthiest people are unlikely to spend because they already have as many pairs of shoes as they want. They already are going to as many fancy restaurants as they want. Uh, they're already driving the fanciest car that they want. They already have as many uh, vacation homes as they want. So they're really not influenced. Uh, somebody like Jay Powell, whose net worth is like $55 million. So it's only the, the marginal saver who, who really affects the prices, who is going to change their consumption behavior based on getting like $1,200 or something in their, in their account. You are saying that financial markets grow at 10%, but the GDP grows at 3%. Yes. This is a very dangerous situation, and it's really suppressing productivity and economic growth. So when, when you um, – the, the whole point of having financial markets was to provide money for innovation and creativity. People could borrow that money and go out into the real economy and, and start new businesses and, and enhance the products and improve their, their – business. But what's happened is the financial, so much money has been pumped in the financial market since 2007 by both the Federal Reserve and by foreign countries that uh, the, the non-financial companies have discovered that they can get more money 
they can they can get more bigger profits by investing in the financial markets than investing in their own business. So instead of um, creating new products, instead of encouraging their employees by giving them incentive pay and so forth, they take that money and they use it uh, in the financial markets. They may engage in share buybacks, which used to be illegal before 1982 by the Securities Exchange Commission considered share buybacks to, to be insider trading. But as the politicians convinced the pressure the Security Exchange Commission to allow share buybacks starting in 1982, and ever since we've had this problem where a lot of businesses find they can make more money in the financial markets. Do you think that some other countries or states has been applying this, this model? Well, actually, the Canadians had their um, postal savings accounts at the same, basically at the same time we did. The Canadians ran those up until 1968. Recently, the Canadians have reinstituted uh, these uh, loan accounts where you can get a loan at the post office, uh, and and that's aimed to trying to help the disadvantaged people who they maybe have a um, automobile accident or a medical emergency or okay. and they don't want to have to go to loan sharks and get really ripped off by loan sharks so some of the politicians actually both in the united states and canada have thought about creating a loans from the government that would be much lower uh, interest okay. rate that would enable okay. people to get back on their feet do you, do you think that this fed accounts proposal will facilitate central bank digital currency cbdc I think the central bank digital currencies uh, will be helpful. I've, I've noticed that young people are more and more not using cash. And I, I went exactly. to the uh, Times Square Sheridan uh, for a conference, the Eastern Economic Association meeting, and it said, we do not accept cash. And I thought, well, this is just a hotel. You know, you just you eat the breakfast at the hotel or lunch or dinner or whatever. But then I went to the, the, the Starbucks and the Starbucks had a sign too that said, we do not accept cash. And my wife and I like to do trash walking around the university. And we used to find loose change all the time around the university. But now we don't find any loose change anymore because students don't carry loose change. They carry their iPhone or their smartphone and they do their transactions with the smartphone and they don't even carry a wallet anymore. So this Fed accounts that you propose, can it be linked to CBDC? So if I have, for example, an account at Fed, personal account, and then if Federal Reserve increased the interest rates, so I probably would not be willing to withdraw my money, right? Or other way around, if they decrease the interest rate, I would be probably more willing to withdraw my money. We, can this might be lead to CBDC idea, like digital money everywhere so that we will never see our money, our cash money? Yeah, Fed accounts could be a transition to a central bank digital currency. So with a Fed account, if everybody with a Social Security had a Fed account, if somebody came and cut your grass or raked your leaves or shoveled your snow, you could pay them some smartphone to smartphone transfer from your Fed account to their Fed account. So that would be very convenient. Now, with regard to the central bank digital currency, that has to be a for it to be a legitimate currency. Given the diversity of opinions on inflation and the appropriate monetary response, where do you personally stand on the spectrum of economic thought? Well, I've been uh, frustrated with these schools of thought, and I have come 
to my own uh, conclusion that we need a new economic paradigm, not the neoclassical paradigm, not the monetarist paradigm, not the Keynesian or the post-Keynesian or the new Keynesian, but the money flow paradigm. The money flow paradigm uh, basically says that we, the government must always be involved in the economy. It's not just the case that comes in when there's some crisis. The government must be involved in day-to-day and, and recognizing when it's appropriate for government action and when it's not appropriate for government action. Yeah, so I'm strongly in favor of government intervention, but I want to do it with professional economists, not with politicians in Congress. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I have one last question, oh, yeah. Larry. Uh, it's it's sure. a kind of out of the topic, but it's uh, very uh, related to economic discussion. So you mentioned misconceptions surrounding the Adam Smith's invisible hand. You are saying in your book, quote, he did not advocate laissez-faire and capitalism, unquote. Could you clarify the common misunderstandings and share your insights on Adam Smith's theories? Everybody's saying that he's, he's pro-market. Well, yes, he certainly did lay out very important idea that when, when you have competition in markets, that uh, you can get better quality products at lower prices. And that, that's very, very important. But you don't want to be blinded to a situation as we have in the United States. If you go to the store and just get a pair of reading glasses off the shelf, then it's only going to cost you a couple of dollars. But if you get a prescription pair, you're dealing with basically two companies. And those two companies set the price at over $100 for a pair of glasses. This is ridiculous. Throughout our economy, and, and, and President Biden is now addressing the problem of the drug prices being ridiculous. So we have a tremendous amount of industrial concentration throughout the United States. So I talk in the book about the first invisible hand of Adam Smith being the invisible hand of competition. But we have a second invisible hand, which is the invisible hand of collusion. And Adam Smith talks about this. He says, when well, these competitors get together, you know, on, and, and they conspire with one another to charge higher prices to the public. So that's an Adam Smith, too. People tend to ignore the second invisible hand. He doesn't call it an invisible hand. There's clearly there's a second invisible hand going on, which is the, the invisible hand of collusion. So when reading Adam Smith, you look at both the invisible hand of competition and the invisible hand of collusion to really understand what Adam Smith is talking about. Thank you. Uh, well, I said last, but I have just one more question. I'm sorry. We talk about Federal Reserve. We talk about school of thoughts, uh, money flow, and everything. Do you think that inflation is so mechanic, or is it more psychological? Well, I think there's both involved, and it's true. Inflation expectations are very important. If you're really afraid that that prices are going to keep going up, you're going to want to spend that money as quickly as possible. If you believe that the Fed Reserve or the Congress have things under control and will be bringing the prices down before long, then you might not be so eager to spend the money and that will reduce the demand and that will help keep inflation under control. Thank you so much, Larry. I think it was a very fruitful conversation and I appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed this a lot. So thank you. Have a good day. This concludes my conversation with Dr. Lawrence Marsh. 
I hope you found it insightful and that this podcast deepened your understanding of inflation and how economists address it. As always, you can reach me via Twitter or email. My Twitter handle is drorhanerdem, which is D as in Delta, R as in Romeo, my first name and my last name together. My email is orhanerdem at gmail.com, which is my first name and my last name together. Hope to see you in the next episodes. Financially yours.